copy of God's holy and inerrant word to John chapter 11. Very significant portion of John chapter 11, and we're biting off more than we normally do this morning. We're going to look at 17 all the way through verse 44. Jesus is going to use this scenario, this scene in the life and the history of the church as a teaching moment. And it's going to be all about salvation. Now, our salvation is threefold, we know, justification, sanctification, and glorification. We'll explain those a little bit as we go along. But the first two, sanctification and justification, we're going to see those illustrated in the lives of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The third, glorification, is going to be seen in the execution of the miracle. That Jesus is going to say that you will see my glory, the glory of God. This, this moment of Lazarus actually coming out of the tomb, this is the crescendo. This is the high point of Jesus' ministry. And the overwhelming purpose of it, the overwhelming point of this miracle is the amazing grace of God in saving and preserving sinners. It's all for his own glory. And he uses a story to illustrate this. And we do this all the time, right? Like we teach lessons to kids based on fairy tales, don't we? I mean, have you ever read the old like Grimm's fairy tales? They are grim. And they mostly involve kids getting killed for not obeying their parents. But they teach a good lesson. You don't forget it, right? Aesop's fables. You hear those and you understand this is a lesson to be taught. Jesus teaches in parables, right? These stories illustrate these truths. And the only book that has more printing and has been in print longer and more successful or as successfully as the Bible, like right underneath the Bible, is Pilgrim's Progress, which is just a story illustrating salvation. So Jesus is going to use this for this point. John, rather, using this moment and Jesus purposing this moment to physically illustrate a spiritual reality. That the point of this miracle is not that a dead man came alive, that a still heart began to beat. The point of this miracle is that Jesus gives life to all that believe. That's the point of the miracle. And he remains active in preserving those who do believe as they grow. That he is the good shepherd who turns goats into sheep and then feeds them forever by still waters and green grass. That's the point of this miracle. The worst thing that Mary and Martha and Lazarus could imagine has happened. Death has come to their house. That's the worst thing. And for all of us, that's what we would consider to be the worst thing for us. Their, their brother, Lazarus, he didn't just get transferred somewhere else. He hasn't gone somewhere else. He's dead. They're emotionally in that moment of a, of a loved one. Of, apparently, they, they were siblings that were so tight, they continued to live together or near each other, even in adulthood. He's gone. And Lazarus has endured the thing that we all fear the most, dying, actually physically expiring. The worst thing that could have happened has happened. They didn't want it, but it fell on them anyway. Jesus could have stopped it, and they knew it. And they could not foresee what Jesus was going to do in it. Paul's prayer, Paul Rasmus, not the apostle. Uh, his prayer was 
was right along the lines of this introduction. The kind providence of God's timing that this text would come up on this Sunday. Think about all that's swirling around us. There is a massive hurricane hurling towards landfall just south of us. Many loved ones that we know will be affected by that. We're enduring, lingering, and resurging, it seems, COVID fears and realities and perplexities and lies and truths and all these things. It's, we thought it was gone, and it's still here. Massive political instability. No comment necessary. Haiti has this earthquake this month. A second over seven point on the Richter scale earthquake. 2,200 people are at least are dead. 300 are still missing in a country that has no infrastructure, no real laws, and whose president was just assassinated. One of the most significant pastors in my life as far as coming into ministry was a Haitian, Jerson Valsen, and he's still there right now. Nigeria. Did you know that in 2020, over half of the Christians that were martyred for being Christians were in Nigeria? Half of the whole world's Christians that were martyred for being Christians were all in Nigeria. It's the most, it's the most difficult place to be right now for all Christians. In Afghanistan, we know. We know. You, we've all heard. The Taliban is saying, hey, we're coming. And they're searching people's phones, looking for Bible apps, going door to door. And if you have a Bible app, now you're in trouble. These are the days that we're in. And let alone, it seems that everybody in our church is either sick or almost sick or caring for people who are sick. If we ever needed a balm for wounds, we, as the people who are alive in this room right now, it's right now. And like the old Negro spiritual says, there is a balm in Gilead that heals the sin-sick soul. And we're going to look at it this morning. So chapter 11, verse 17 let me read the first few verses to get us into the story. Now, when Jesus came, remember, he is left and he's coming. The disciples are saying, let's go anyways, even though he's going to die when we get there. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany, the town where they lived, was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming... She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will. Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, this is very close to hostile territory. The leadership there in Jerusalem is seething against Jesus. He goes anyways to get close to these people. And many Jews had come from Jerusalem, verse 19 says, to console them. Uh... It's known from Jewish history, cultural mandates that you had to have certain amount of mourners that were there. So some of these mourners that were here to console them were paid mourners, just faking the grief just so that it sounds really loud. Some of them were genuinely there because they loved them, but nevertheless, that's the scene. But when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she runs to Jesus. And when she sees him, she says this. She speaks first. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she tacks on an extra theological statement. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Maybe a bit of a Bible flex there. I still know this to be true about you. But she's not accusing Jesus 
angrily, like if you had just been here, everything would have been better. He's not, she's not accusing. It's just factual. She knows. If you were here, you could have healed him. You rule over all of creation. She's studied. She's been paying attention to Jesus' ministry for these three years. And she says, even now, I know that whatever you ask God, he'll give you. I know that. So Martha, we're seeing here her sanctification moment. She's going to have one. Mary's going to have one. And then Lazarus is going to be the illustration of justification. But this sanctification moment, this growth in godliness moment is going to happen here for Martha. She tags on that statement after her initial, if you had been here, you wouldn't have died. But I know who you are. And when you pray, God acts because you are God. Verse 23 and 27 is going to be the dialogue back and forth between Jesus and Martha. Now that she's made her opening statement, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. That's all he says. He just says that to her. And then she chimes in. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus just says, your brother's going to rise again. And she goes, oh, I know. I know he'll rise again on the last day. Have you ever helped a kid, maybe even not a kid, maybe just your husband, doing something that they clearly don't know how to do, and they just kept saying, I know, I know, I know, I know. No, no, I know, I know, I know. That's what I do with at my house all the time, just with my kids. And you do that? No, I know, I know, I know. No, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know. And what does she say in verse 24? I know that he will rise again in the last day. Oh, yeah, you're telling me something I already know, Jesus. I know that at the end of time, that you, when you are reigning on your throne, every dead body is going to come out of the dirt, out of the water, out of the ashes, be reassembled in new heavenly bodies. I know that that's going to happen, but thanks for telling me anyways. That's what she's on right now. But then Jesus says this. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't do anything. I mean, she's in this grieving moment. We're going to see this love of Christ, and we already know explicitly Jesus loves this family so much. All he says to her is this, in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. So she says, I know that he will rise again on the last day, that, that he will be there at the resurrection and have that eternal life. And Jesus says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This is Jesus, one of Jesus' I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Everybody's going to die, but if they're in me, they don't die. They really live eternally. Martha, do you believe this? He tells her, in a sense, death is inevitable. I'm here to conquer death, and belief in me is the only escape. That's what he tells her. Death is inevitable, Hebrews 9, 27, just as is appointed for man to die once after this comes judgment. Everyone is going to die once. But Jesus conquers that death. That's what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection meaning I beat death and give some kind of new, unconquerable life. 2 Timothy 1, 10 tells us that. Talking about salvation and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death abolished it, destroyed it, conquered it, obliterated it, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So death is inevitable. Jesus abolishes death. 
And then lastly, what he's saying to her is, all who believe in me, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever, conversely, meaning only those who believe in me. And we see this at Revelation, describing that last moment. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. The same guy who wrote John 11 writes Revelation, and he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So destroyed, death. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if any na anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found in the Lamb's book of life what did John the Baptist say in John 1, 29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb's book of life, Jesus saying that I am the resurrection and the life. It's all kind of coalescing. He's the only escape from the inevitable enemy because he's conquered that inevitable enemy. He tells Martha that in this I am statement in verses 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection. I don't give resurrection. I don't give life. I am those things. We got to hear that. Because what we think about Jesus a lot of times is just he's the dispenser of what I want or what I need or what is good or what is eternal. No, he is that. Jesus is the gospel. A lot of times we think we, the gospel is about Jesus, and that's true. But what's more true is that he is the gospel. He is resurrection. He is life. That's the very nature of his being. And then he says, Martha, do you believe this? And in verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, isn't that very profession exactly what John says the whole book is about? The whole book of John? John says in 20, let me just read it for you real quick. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these, these signs, these miracles, these works, these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's exactly what Martha just said. She confesses the whole point of the Gospel of John. This woman understands who Jesus is. She's not ignorant. She's not misguided she's not overwhelmed she says i believe that you are the son of god you are the sent one the christ who's coming into the world that's the good profession that's what peter said in matthew 16 right you are the christ the son of the living god blessed are you peter for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my father who is in heaven revealed it to you that's the good confession. This is what the whole book is about. This is what the whole ministry of the church is, leading people to this, being used by God to lead people to this profession. But you know what's interesting about this profession? When did it come? She meets Jesus. She runs to Jesus, initiates. 
and says, if you had been here, I know what you are capable of. You could have healed my brother. He would not have died. I know that to be true about you. And I know that even now, whatever you ask of God, he'll do because you are one with the Father. You're the Son of God. And then Jesus asks her, that woman who makes that statement, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that those who believe in me will never see death? The second death. He asks her that then, after she's already displayed solid biblical knowledge. That's when she, asked, she gets asked, do you believe this? True saints are never perturbed by the gospel being presented to them again and their faith being tested, maybe is not even the right word, validated is maybe a better word. True saints aren't perturbed by that. She isn't, Martha's not incensed. How dare you ask me this, Jesus? Didn't you just hear what I said to you earlier? The things that I know, I don't even know just stuff about you. I know deep cut Old Testament stuff about the resurrection of human bodies that we have trouble finding as New Testament Christians in the Old Testament. We find it all over the new, but she knew it in the old. And she does, she's not incensed. She's not outraged at the audacity of Jesus to ask her if she even believes this. Because when you truly put a validation moment out there for one who is actually born again, there, yes, I believe that. Brother, sister, what have I done to make you think that I don't believe that? Lord Jesus, what have I done to make you think that, that I don't believe that? But he's not even in that moment. He's just asking her again, do you believe the gospel? not offended she didn't point back to her have you seen what i've done for you have you seen how i lived how could you ask me that look at the evidence look at the faith she says no i do believe that's all that it hangs on this isn't a reputation question this isn't a a validation question on the sense of like who you are as a person this is just do you believe this yes i believe this i love confessing again the truth of the gospel i'm enraptured in, in to be able to say this all over again imagine peter right at the end of end of john chapter 21 he denies three times then jesus asks him three times makes him deal with his sin three times he's not angry he's maybe a little bit ashamed but he says you know that i love you because he really does he's not he's like, how, how could you ask me that i followed you around for three years he says you know that i love you you know that i love you how would you respond if this question was put to you? Do you believe this? I'm going to explain the gospel of who Jesus is. Do you believe this? Well, of course I do. I've been going to church my whole life. Or would you be like, yes, yes, I believe this. I love to believe this, and I love to confess this. I think that that kind of thinking would alleviate a lot of the stress and a lot of the issues that we have of hearing the gospel again as those who are in the visible church. Many times I counsel many people, and usually young men, not even young men anymore, men of all ages, with the, the evil vice of pornography. To get to the place where they go, I don't even think I'm saved. I'm not saved. I've done this so much, I'm not saved. There's no way I'm saved. And then I add, well, look what I've done. I mean, here I am again. I'm on all these things again. And I'm like, okay, quit looking at any of that stuff. 
Do you believe this? Do you believe it right now? Yes. Well, then you're saved. This is Jesus with Martha right here at this moment, critical moment of her brother's death. Do you believe this? Yes. Do you believe this right now? He didn't ask her, did you believe this? He didn't ask her, hey, time stamp it for me. When did you believe this? He asked her, now, do you believe this? What a gift in our sanctification to have the Lord Jesus say this. Do you believe this? You know what we get hung up on as people? We get hung up on birth certificates, and we don't ever check for a pulse. I keep looking back. Do I have that moment in my Bible where the pastor wrote down that on this day, at this moment, at this minute, I became a Christian? I can't find it. I can't remember. I mean, was it then, or was it at camp, or was it in college, or was it at work? Or I don't know. Which, yeah. Do you have a pulse? Stop looking for a birth certificate. Because that's always going to be a, a, a maddening chase. But we've had it drilled into us. Your testimony is the gospel. So when you share your testimony, you're sharing the gospel. No, no, I'm sharing what the gospel has done. It's not the gospel. But if my testimony is out of whack and I can't figure out the exact moment, then I'm done. I'm hosed. Am I saved? I don't know because I keep sinning. But just put your finger to your wrist. Do you have a pulse now? That's what he asked Martha. When did you believe this? Or have you believed this? Or let's look at the past and evaluate this. No, do you believe this? Present tense. And she says overwhelmingly, yes, Lord, I believe. That's what it's about. So don't look for a birth certificate in your sanctification. Look for a pulse. Because you might be sick. You might have a broken leg. Your heart is beating. That means you're alive. And Martha is sick. She has a broken leg. She's in a dark place. Her brother is dead in a seemingly untimely way. And Jesus builds her up. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe. And after that moment, Martha runs away. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you teachers here so she's not running away out of shame she's like gotta get married she's gotta get here now so she's also going through the same moment and when she heard it meaning mary she rose quickly and went to him so when she's called she comes different than martha right martha hears about jesus and then she runs on her own mary stays but when mary knows jesus wants her she's up and she's gone she's running right to him verse 30 now jesus had not yet come into the village but was still at the place where martha had met him so somewhere out on the outskirts when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So they all go with her. So Mary brings a crowd. Martha goes by herself. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Now Martha doesn't fall at his feet. We're seeing different personalities, different types. She falls at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Different expressions, but same sentiment. Martha stands up and runs to him. Mary waits to be called, and then she goes, and then she falls, but she says the same thing that Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, not accusatory, not saying it's your fault. 
but saying, I know this to be true about you. You are the one who can conquer death. You are the one who's sovereign over all created things. That's who you are. I know that to be true. But she doesn't follow it up with any other theological assertion. That's not Mary's personality. Verses 33 and 35, through 35 rather, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So there's no dialogue with Mary. There's no uh, discussion there's no I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life with Mary like he had with Martha. Mary's sanctification is different because Mary is different. Jesus is the same, but Mary and Martha are different. He just observes the pain. Do you see that? Verse 31, or rather verse 32, she falls at his feet. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping he was deeply moved and then he weeps so he observes her pain and then he expresses pain he weeps shortest verse in the bible just two greek words shortest verse just two words in our bibles this is shows again jesus's true humanity because god doesn't cry God's not taken aback by anything. God's not surprised by anything. God's not hurt by anything. God can't be changed. And when we experience emotional states, we change from being happy to sad to, to glad to concerned. To, we change. But Jesus is truly human. This is an expression of his real humanity. This is real, authentic weeping. Real, authentic acknowledging of others' pain. He, John goes so far as to say, we know that Jesus would see the weeping. But he saw her weeping, and he saw them weeping. And then he was troubled. He was moved. Jesus is true humanity. I want to pause here, talking about Mary's sanctification, and look at Jesus. Jesus wept. What else can we say that we've seen Jesus do? You know what we've never seen Jesus do? And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll never see Jesus recorded you never see him laugh. He's never recorded as smiling. He's never described as relaxed. He never dances. He is recorded as being angered. He is recorded as weeping here. And then again, when he looks over at Jerusalem, and when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you together like a hen gathers her chicks. But you wouldn't have me. He weeps. He's angry. But he's never described as cheerful, lighthearted, jovial, relaxed. But he is described as sad, distraught, moved, troubled, frustrated. Things that we all feel. Things that we all go through. And Isaiah 53, 3, looking forward to the suffering servant, that, that Isaiah has several suffering servant songs that he writes out, describing and looking forward to the Messiah that would come centuries later. But in 53, 3, the prophet writes, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, not a man of levity acquainted with happiness. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's what Jesus is described as. Why are we seeing Jesus do this? I mean, he, he doesn't get at the wedding at Cana back in chapter 2. Do you remember that? Weddings are big events. They're celebratory, and they're only happy. But when does Jesus actually engage, or what, what is written of him? Does he engage? He engages the moment of conflict, of crisis. He's not described as dancing or, or jumping around or congratulating the bride and the groom. He never talks to any of them. He talks to his mom and the head waiter, and that's it. And only when the bad thing happens. So why is Jesus described for us reading this as the man of sorrows, as the one of grief, as one who weeps, but not one who is lighthearted or relaxed or jovial? Jesus is leading us, right? He's our example. And in Acts 14, 22, where our lives are described like this, in this sermon that is being preached, is strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How do we get to heaven? By going the pilgrim's journey, full of trials, full of tribulations, full of grief, full of sorrow. Jesus is showing us by it being recorded here that he weeps at death, weeps at sin in the world that causes death, weeps at the pain that his friends are enduring and going through because that's what we are going to have to do. We are going to have to enter the kingdom of heaven through trials and tribulations, grief and sorrow. Jesus is showing us your, your rejoicing, your jubilation, your full-on expression of unencumbered elation is not going to be here. It's going to be there. Rest doesn't come. Relaxation, joy, true joy, happiness doesn't come on the east side of the Jordan River. It comes on the west side of the Jordan River through many trials and tribulations. And Jesus is saying, follow me as the man of sorrows. So he weeps at the tomb because of sin and death being real and present. And then in verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's almost as if in verses 36 and 37, this, this crew that's with Mary, that they're kind of wrapped into the, the picture of Mary's sanctification. They, they can't make it square. We see Jesus weep. Jesus doesn't weep with Martha. He weeps with Mary. He converses and dialogues with Martha about, about truth and principles and, and theology. But he weeps with Mary. And Mary's friends, and then they can't put it together. He clearly loves him, but he could have saved him. Why didn't he? They can't square it together, almost as if they're speaking for her in some way. Clearly he loved Lazarus and his sisters, so why didn't he keep death from their house? I think what we can see before we move on to the, to the peak of the miracle Everyone wrestles in sanctification. Mary's and Martha's. Jocks and band kids. The rich 
and the poor, the logical, the whimsical, men and women, lefties and righties, literate and illiterate, people that had great father figures, people who have horrible father figures, people who can't keep a job, people who are millionaires. I mean, on and on. Everybody struggles with sanctification. It doesn't matter your personality type. It doesn't matter uh, what your proclivities are. Everybody struggles with sanctification. Nobody has an easier time pursuing godliness than anyone else. Martha was struggling despite her theological knowledge of the truth. Mary was struggling despite her relational closeness with the Savior. It didn't matter. Both had to reckon with the same question. They have to think, based on my knowledge and my understanding, my relationship, my closeness with the Father and with His Son, based on that, why did this happen? Why did it happen? This hurts. I'm confused. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That doesn't seem to do anything for me today. But how does Jesus address both of them? He meets them both where they are. They are different. Jesus is the same. He speaks with Mary, with Martha, dialogues about the truth. He weeps with Mary. They are different. Jesus is the same. Sanctification is difficult and is rightly defined as a struggle for all of us. But what precedes sanctification, which means growing in Christ, is being reborn by Christ. So the story is a little bit out of order because we're ending with the beginning, but it's leading us to this moment. So look at verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Don't miss it. Twice. Jesus is deeply moved again. Verse 33, verse 38. Jesus has authentic compassion for his sheep. Real compassion for his sheep. He's deeply moved. And it says so again. And then in verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Every once in a while, we need to give you a King James Bible. Because sometimes it's going to be confusing, it'll make you slow down. But other times it's just going to be a little more blunt and understandable. The King James says, John eleven thirty nine, 39, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Just very blunt. Our translation in the ESV says, There will be an odor. KJV says, He stinketh. Because he's been in there for four days. Four days he's been in there. But Martha, wait a minute. You're the one bringing this up? Martha talks a lot. And in the other stories that she's in, she talks a lot. And Lord bless her, I have the exact same problem. But she just keeps, she says, wait, 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 don't don't move the stone. Don't move towards my dead brother. Don't do that because it's going to stink. It'll be unpleasant for who? People that are mourning and grieving for Jesus. I mean, who are you looking at? What's going on here? Martha, wasn't it you that said back in verse 22, but I know that right now anything you ask of the Father, he will do? 
and then yet you're the one saying, don't open the tomb? Martha, what's, what's going on right now? Here's what I think it is. The straightforward nature of regeneration, of being born again, is something that just doesn't sit well with us, those of us who have been born again even, like Martha. It seems too simple. It seems too plain. It's just too blunt. What do you mean you're just going to open the tomb? We want to soften it. We want to complicate it. We want to dress it up. What Jesus wants to do is move the rock and let me talk to him. That's all he wants to do is move the, open the tomb and let him come out. People are born again to everlasting life by hearing the words of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Nothing else needs to accompany it. Just unleash the word. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's where saving faith comes from. Hearing by the word of Christ. Martha's sanctification, just a little more time. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Jesus just patiently leads her. Hey, remember what we just talked about, Martha? Do you remember? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. This is all for my glory. Now, Mary may have felt the same way, but she at least had the wisdom to not say anything. Proverbs 17, 28, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. We don't know how dumb you are if you don't talk. Mary at least has that going for her. Me and Martha, you know how dumb we are. We're going to talk. In verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus prays. The tomb is open, the stink is out, and Jesus says, I'm going to stop and pray. I'm going to pray right now. And whose benefit is he praying for? It seems as if he's already been praying, right? Verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Well, you just started talking, Jesus. Clearly, he's been in prayer before this moment happens. But he's going to say this prayer for whose benefit? Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you hear me. Can prayer be instructive? Is prayer something that we need to grow and develop in personally? Where does the Lord's Prayer come from? How does that moment happen in Matthew chapter 6? What do the disciples say? Hey, teach us how to pray. Jesus doesn't say, hey, no, man, just do your thing. Prayer is just being chill and talking to God. No, he says, oh, when you pray, pray like this. Here's a model for you to follow. Here's some key things to continue to bring up. We do need to learn and to continue to grow how to pray. And our prayers in public are to be instructive because Jesus says it as bluntly as possible. I'm praying so that everybody in earshot is going to know what's true. I don't know if you noticed, but in our, our elder prayer time where we read the scriptures in our, our, our service in the morning, we have intentional prayers. And they're supposed to be long. They're supposed to make you feel like, man, this prayer is really going on. Paul really got inspired. 
I've heard a pastor say, pray so much in your church service that people who are faking being Christians are uncomfortable and leave. Because we're talking to God. What else are we here to do? We're speaking to the Heavenly Father. And that prayer is to be instructive to the church how to pray. Because are you like me? Do you get in ruts? Do, do, do you say Father God 5,000 times in your prayer? Father God, we thank you for this. Father God, Father God, we thank you for this. Father God, we, or do we just get in ruts? I pray for this and this and this. Thank you for this. And then we're done. If it is a conversation, we need to be instructed on how to pray and to grow and develop in that. And so Jesus is saying, I'm praying right now before this miracle to instruct them. My prayer is for them. You're hearing me, and I know you hear me, but I'm praying and speaking to you in public so that others will hear me and be blessed and edified before this moment. And two things he wants them to know. The Father has always heard him because there's never been a time where the Father and the Son have not been together. The Son didn't become at some point. He's always been. He always is, just like the Father always is. And the second thing that he wants them to know is that they must believe that he has sent by the Father. He's the sent one, the Savior, the Messiah. That's him. That's who he is. He wants the people to hear those two things. And essentially what that boils down to is these people need to know that I am who I say I am and I can do what I said I can do. That's what the gospel boils down to, doesn't it not? Who is Jesus? What does he do? Believe the truth about that. The sent one, the Messiah who intercedes for the elect. You need to know that Jesus is that. And it was worth Lazarus dying. Remember, Jesus says, I'm glad that I wasn't there. I'm glad that I wasn't there for your faith to be strengthened, for Mary and Martha's faith to be strengthened, and for all the people who are going to be at the tomb when the moment comes for their faith to be strengthened. This is for everyone. I mean, otherwise, why would Jesus, who knows all things, weep at a tomb that he knows in 30 seconds he's going to bring that guy back out? He knows what he's going to do, so those, but those tears are real because he's fully God, he's truly God and truly man. Just complexity beyond us. But then he comes to the moment. Verse 43, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus speaks to the dead man and he comes alive. The word dead or died is in our text this morning own times. John wants to make it sure you really know this guy is really dead. And it keeps mentioning four days. Because even if Jesus had left where he was on the northeast side of Jordan River and gone to Bethany as soon as he got the message from Martha and Mary it, still, it would have been two days he still would have been dead by the time he got there but he waits two more days so that it's four days that he's dead that's significant because there's a Jewish myth at that time in kind of folk religion that after three for th up to three days a dead person's spirit kind of hovers over them hoping something might happen that the, they could get rejoined with the body and then come back out and be alive again. So Jesus waits four days. He is really, really dead. You can't point to any kind of myth and say, oh, yeah, well, he got there in the, in the grace window, and it happened, and then whoosh, good thing he got there. No, four days, he's really, really dead, totally dead. 
and a dead man what can a dead man do stink that's it and he doesn't even do that voluntarily that's just what he is by nature of being dead he doesn't cooperate he doesn't say hey jesus i'm in here and i'm dead please do something help me out i really want to come out if somebody could just move the rock doesn't do that and let's think about the the actual moment of a resurrection Lazarus is laying there on the slab, wrapped loosely in cloth. His head's wrapped in a separate cloth. That's why it mentions it. He's dead flat out, and he's decomposing. His ears that are dead hear the voice of Jesus. His heart that is decaying and decomposing springs to life and begins to beat. His arteries that are flat like a hose with no water, fill up, and life-giving blood starts moving through them. His legs, which have not been used in who knows how long, because he's been sick and laid up, they're atrophied to some extent. They can carry his weight, and somehow, even being wrapped up, he has enough skill and dexterity to walk out on his own power. That's the moment. That's what happens to Lazarus. So when we see a miracle to that extent, and then there's all these people present, the sisters, the mourners, the fake mourners, the real friends and family, they're all there. When you rehash this over the dinner table, because now Lazarus is going to eat dinner with you, what happened? What brought him out? The words of Christ. That's all that anybody could say. That's all that could Lazarus, what was it like? How did, you, how did you hear your ears were dead? How did you have blood in your feet? Because your heart was dead. What needed to happen, the critical thing, was the words of Christ. And there was only three. Lazarus, come out. Now, in that moment, think about this, as this picture of justification, of being born again, like John 3 talks about, being born again, new life, eternal life, being converted, brought from death into life, made a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This moment right here, how silly would it have looked for Mary and Martha to try to help Jesus? Well, yeah, yeah, well, let's, well, before you get in there, Jesus, let us... Let's decorate the tomb and make it make it feel like a place that somebody would really want to come back to life. Let's just make it a, the, the aesthetic is kind of gloomy at the tomb. Let's get in there and let us decorate real quick. Make it just feel a little more comfortable. Hey, you know what, Jesus, before you speak, I kind of think I know where you're going here. Uh, let me tell you how Lazarus would like to be spoken to. I've studied a lot of dead people, and this is how they like to hear the words of life. This is how the words of life really communicate. Let me give you some tips on your delivery. Or what if they went in there and picked up Lazarus's body? They were like, oh, yeah, well, he, he seems to be coordinating. I mean, he really wants to be here. Jesus, I mean, if you, go ahead and let it happen. We got him. We got him halfway here for you. What if they were talking to Lazarus? Jesus, before you get in there, let me, let me lay a little groundwork with my brother. I know him. I mean, I've been his sister for, for many, many years. I mean, just, Lazarus, tell me, tell me what it's like being dead. 
How's it been? What you been struggling with? What beetles are currently eating your eardrum? You know, like, what, what's it like, you know, having your toes just fall off? I mean, this, this is just totally farcical, right? When Jesus brings new life to do anything like that? Like, isn't that what many, many churches say we got to do? We got to make the tomb look better. We got to sympathize and understand the dead. We got to coach the words of Christ so that they land in the right way. We got to make, we got to animate them. We got to prop them up by energy, by things that are going on. So then they'll finally be able to come back to life. When in reality, in this moment, what brought Lazarus back from the dead? The voice of the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's it. That's what brought new life where death reigned. What, what was the one role that people were given to do? Back in verse 38. Or verse 39. Take away the stone. Here's what you do. Here's what we do to assist Jesus. Remove sound barriers so that Jesus' voice can fill the area. That's it. But even still, we know Jesus can make people come alive if in the rock was there. But as an illustration of justification, just let Jesus' voice be heard. Move the rock. And then step back. The only thing that mattered that day, the only thing that brought life was the commanding word of Christ. That was it. And do we not have that same word right here? Do, do we see now the significance of John 1, 1? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We have it. This is what will bring life to the dead. The word of Christ. And the same arrangement exists today. Remove sound barriers and let the word speak plainly to the dead. And then watch what Jesus does when he brings new life from the grave. All to the glory of God. So Jesus in real time and in real space, he used a physical situation to teach a spiritual truth, but it involved real people pointing them to the greatest reality. Every person is Lazarus. Dead super dead so dead that's why john repeats that word so many times in chapter 11 very very dead powerless and stinking that's every person and only one voice can grant new life new birth regeneration jesus speaks and it makes us alive and we walk out of death see when we think about this theologically when does lazarus come to Jesus before or after Jesus makes him a new creature and raises him from the dead after he's not a mummy or a zombie who stumbles his way towards Jesus and Mary and Martha kind of guide him over there no he only comes to Jesus responds in faith when Jesus makes him alive again by his voice the purpose of Mary and Martha's emotional pain and Lazarus's physical pain was to point them and to point us to the gospel. This is the point of all of it, that living and death is imminent. Lazarus has to die again. Have you ever thought about that when you read the story? He knows what it's like, and he's got to do it again. <laughs> Poor guy. But 
I mean, this is the reality. What, what are we going to do on that day? What are you going to do on that day? That Lazarus had to go through twice, the feeling of death. The point of this miracle is moving us towards it. Because after this, after this chapter, it goes to the upper room and then to the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's where we're headed. So the point of this miracle is to make us face this question, what is your hope? On that day, in the day in which we live right now, the Afghanistan disaster, Haiti, Nigeria, COVID here, political instability here, hurricanes here, all of this. In that day, when all of those things come thundering down, what is your one hope? Jesus is pointing us to it. Me. I'm your one hope. And he, I'm here for all, for all of you. I love that the Heidelberg Catechism says it like this. What is thy only comfort in life and in death? What a great question to start off a teaching tool with. What's your only comfort? What's your only hope? And here's the answer. That I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my only hope. And the question's answer is a lot longer than that, but I won't be able to make it through it without crying. But that's our only hope in life and in death, our only comfort, that I'm not my own. It's not me, and nothing's on me. That I am Christ's. He called me out, and what he has done cannot be undone. That's my only hope. So what we need to do as we continue on this pilgrim journey, we look back at Mary and Martha, we need to continually run to the feet of Jesus like Mary. She's always described as being at his feet, sitting, listening, near, close. And we need to speak, dialogue with Jesus like Martha. I know this, but clearly it's not working itself out in my life. But I know these things to be true. Help me. And we need to be like Lazarus and just, you work on me. <laughs> I'm just dead and laying here. You work on me. You do these things. Because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He is the gospel. And he is our only hope. But our only hope is not a desperation. It's not a, I wish this would happen. It's a confident assurance. All that I have and all that I am is on him. And I am assured he will carry me safely to the other side. And it will all be, as he told to Martha, for his glory. You will see my glory. Father in heaven, we look at Lazarus, we look at Mary, we look at Martha. We see ourselves in Martha and we see ourselves in Mary. Confused and scared, uh, not understanding, fully aware of your power, thankful for your closeness, but yet still perplexed. And instead of explaining to us all that is in your mind as the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all that is in your plan, all that is in your hidden decree, you just point us to yourself say, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And when we say yes, you don't say good. Stop complaining. You see our distress. You see us weeping. And you weep. And you show us that this is indeed the land of weeping and sorrow. We will have blessings. 
We will have many good men, but we know that our hope is not ultimately here. We, we know that true rejoicing, true situational and circumstantial happiness that never ends and it can never be assailed comes in heaven and not here. So, Father, what we ask for is strength to endure and strength to believe that all that we need is your word. That's how you brought Lazarus from the dead. That's how you got creation into being. You spoke. Let the refrain of Genesis 1 be in our mind that just repeats 10 plus times, and God said, and God said, and God said. And as he said, the word, which is Jesus Christ, went and created and made life. And if that same word makes life in the beginning, then he can remake life here and now. May we trust that and believe that, that you have invested your power in the word that we would trust and believe that that will bring souls from the dead and that we get to be a part of that by just moving the stone and letting your word do its work. All we are doing is just making a clear path for the word. We add nothing to it, and Father, please keep us from ever subtracting anything from it. And may we rest in the great hope that we have not wishful thinking, not a 50-50 not a chance, not a, well, you're the, you seem like to be the best option. No, you are it, and we are confident that you will hold us fast until the end. You will keep us steady upon the foundation of Christ all the way till the end. Come what may, may it be wars, weathers, internal infighting, strife, and even death. We know that you have abolished and conquered death and brought life and immortality in the gospel. And may we rest forever in that truth, even now, while we trod this pilgrim path. And we come to you through the one Savior, our only comfort in life and in death, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.